Good morning and welcome to this worship service. I invite you to stand and join me in the call to worship which is printed in your bulletin. As we gather together this morning, we pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give each of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Eternal God, our Father, who is from everlasting to everlasting, you have made us and you are never far from us, so that we, your children, may learn the ways of freedom and choose you with all of our hearts. Grant us now your Holy Spirit, that confident in prayer, we may worship you with joy and become as little children before you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's great to see you as we gather for worship today, singing the praises of our God. Before you're seated, take a moment, introduce yourself to someone perhaps that you do not know, or maybe reintroduce yourself to someone you may have met before. Just take a minute to uh, greet one another and share a word of peace. So just a couple of things. We're still collecting jars. We have, I think, maybe up to like 150 now. So we've had a big boom week of collecting jars. It's great. Uh, If we get maybe another 50, that would be awesome. So if you have any more lying around, um, then uh, we'd appreciate it. And we're using them on May 8th, but we probably need all of them brought in before the 1st so we can prepare them for uh, this event that we're doing. So uh, thanks for your help with that. Uh, Also, I just wanted to... um, Mentioned that we had, uh, there's an insert in your bulletin about Children's Church. And we're still looking for a few folks to help with Children's Church and the nursery. There's not an insert about the nursery, but if you're interested, you can just jot that on that paper. Just make sure you mark nursery. If those Today's the last day to sign up for nursery. They're making the schedule tomorrow. So if you can help out working with our children throughout the summer, that would be greatly appreciated. We're also happy to welcome uh, two new folks into the life of our church. Christian David Rohrbach was born Monday to Andrew and Susie, and we give thanks uh, for this gift of new life. And also, Anne Elaine Jordan was born Thursday to Mike and Jill and their family. We celebrate with with both families, and uh, we look forward to to, uh, bringing these little ones into the church and together nurturing them in the faith. We're excited this morning to uh, welcome David Lewis. He's going to be sharing a little bit about um, summer Mission opportunities uh, through the uh, sports department, athletic department at the college. Good morning. I just want to share a brief analogy. Uh, I've been asked to talk a little bit about sports ministry. You've probably heard the analogy that a hammer in the hands of a carpenter can be a useful tool for creative uh, construction. But that same hammer placed in the hands of a criminal can do bodily harm and damage. Now, I want to extend the metaphor a little bit further and to what, what would, would happen if the creative carpenter, if he or she would ignore the hammer and not use it at all? What a missed opportunity. Or perhaps worse, or at least as bad, what if that same carpenter used it for destructive purposes like the criminal? Well, The hammer is simply a tool, and that's what sports ministry is all about. It's using the tool of athletics, and that tool can be used for godly purposes if used correctly, but it can also be ignored and and not used at all, and what a missed opportunity, or it can also be used destructively, as unfortunately oftentimes happens in the world, where it's about greed and self-centeredness and all kinds of exploitation. At Houghton College, our athletic department, our administration, and all of our coaches are committed to using athletics in a way that we can experience what true sports ministry is about, transforming lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus is still changing lives today. 
We sing about it. We read about it. Do we believe it? And do we experience it? And that's what sports ministry is about, using this tool to help transform lives. Now, over the years, our athletic teams have been on every continent with the exception of Antarctica. I'm still waiting to see what team wants to venture there. In the past 18 years, we have been to over 15 different countries, and many of those countries we have traveled to on multiple occasions. This, uh, in four weeks, our women's soccer team, or at least some of the members of our women's soccer team, will be traveling to Romania and also to Austria. We're going to partner with Surge International, which is a sports ministry located in Salem, Oregon. And while we're in the two countries, we're partnering with churches and ministries that are ongoing there. Every time we go to a country, we always want to go where there's an existing work. We don't want to simply go by ourselves and then leave and there's nothing left. We always go where we can serve the existing ministries, and that's our goal. In our case, we will be using soccer in various forms, soccer clinics, playing games in just public parks, informal soccer matches against teams. Basically, we're there to serve and whatever capacities we can serve the church and the local ministries that we'll be partnering with. And we're also grateful for this church because this church has been supportive over the years uh, through prayer and through financial support, and we want to thank you for catching the vision of what can occur through sports ministry. And I certainly would encourage and welcome your prayers as we look to leave in four weeks. Thank you.
the Old Testament scripture reading is Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them what they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings, please stand for the doxology. Not by words only, O God, would we offer our thanksgiving for so many loving expressions of your concern for us, but also in Christ's name we dedicate these gifts that through them we may participate in the work of your ever-widening kingdom. Amen. You may be seated.
Thank you so much for expressing the desire of our hearts to be like Jesus. As we enter a time of prayer together, those of you who would like to come and use the altar rail as the place uh, you offer your prayers, I invite you to come and to join me now, and uh, then we will join together in the prayer of confession and then the pastoral prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we come today with the need to confess our sins to you. We have spoken harshly when a gentle word was the right response. We have broken confidence even though we were trusted with sensitive information. We have acted arrogantly despite your call to humility. We have allowed our work to drive us while ignoring the rest that you command and that we need. We have not honored others above ourselves. We have been selfish with our time, our gifts, and our resources. In your loving mercy, forgive us. And in your wondrous grace, make us more like Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayer of confession. We need you. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Today we come uh, with hurts and pains and disappointments and struggles that, that span the horizon of our lives and our experiences. We pray, Father, that you will give wisdom to all who are anxious and peace to all who are worried about the future. We pray that you will restore relationships that are broken. We pray that you will comfort all who are grieving. We pray that you will heal every disease. We pray especially today for Barb Rangel, Bill Duzema, for Bob Jobert, Rich Reynolds, for Calvin and Laurel Buecher, for Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, for Phil Muecher, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman, for Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, for Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklark, and for others who may be on our minds today. Bring your healing grace upon each one. We thank you for our church, and we pray for the, the various ministries and leaders of our church. This morning, we pray for our elders. Thank you for those who lead us in this way. And we pray that you will continue to help the elders to be servants who serve you as they serve the church. May you give them wisdom and understanding and your heart. We pray for the churches around us. This morning for St. Paul's Lutheran Church and Angelica and Pastor Hoyt. May they know your blessing in their worship, in their service, in their lives together and in and in their ministry to others. Lord, we think and pray beyond our area even. We pray for the people of Flint, Michigan, as they continue to to struggle with their water situation. We pray for all the places of violence and war and chaos 
in our nation and in other places of the world. Think of the refugees that are fleeing Syria and other dangerous places in this world. Protect them. Bring them to the place of safety. And protect them. Help them. We pray, Father, for the, um, the needs of, of your church around the world. We thank you for the work of Global Partners. And in a month and a half or so, they will be bringing here to town all the missionaries of Global Partners. And we pray that this time will be a wonderful time of restoration and learning and fellowship and experiencing you. Help us as a church as we support them. We pray your grace upon uh, those who are persecuted and think especially of the church in Nigeria. Attacks, deaths, threats. Lord, we pray for your grace upon them. As local pastors are helping with relief and comfort and hope, may they truly be your hands and your feet and your voice, your eyes, your presence. Father, we thank you for our educational institutions here. And we pray for uh, the last month or so of the semester at the college and the last couple of months at the academy. And in these times of intense learning and study, we pray that you will work miraculously, academically, spiritually, relationally. We ask this through Christ. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers, for blessing our lives every moment. Help us to see you, the good and the bad, and the victories and the struggles. We pray all of this through Christ Jesus, who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
New Testament scripture reading is from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. Following the tradition of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grasses of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. I suspect that one time or another, we have, probably a lot of times, we've wondered what it's going to be like to live in eternity. And uh, as if you've been around the church, you know there are a number of theories about that. And um, there are theories that uh, we may agree with and theories you may disagree with. I'm coming to more and more the realization over the last X number of years that rather than our existence being uh, disembodied souls in sort of the cloudy kind of pictures that we sometimes paint, but that we will we will be bodily resurrected here on earth, the new heaven and new earth, a restored earth, redeemed earth, and as restored and redeemed people. And just as Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, so we will be bodily raised from the dead. And we will live this way. And, and granted, I think our bodies will have some similarities to them now and some differences from what we have now. Maybe like Jesus' resurrected body. And because we live on this earth, it means that uh, God will not destroy the earth, but he will redeem it. And it says something about how we view the earth even now. And as people existing on the new heaven, new earth... We will create like God does. We're made in the image of God and we do what God does. And creating is one of the most profound things that God does. We make and do and, and, and produce. And, and we will do that as well, I think. And uh, it will be a glorious time. But one of the things that's also been in my mind about that existence is what role do possessions play? Will we have things? Will we have possessions? And I would say that probably for most of my life, I would have said no. But the more I think about it, the more I read the scriptures, I think maybe we will. I mean, if we are... Hey, Mike, could you grab, can we get that handheld mic while I keep going? Okay. Um, so we have, well, I think, oh, I don't like doing it. Okay. So I, I think that we will, um, you know, we'll have the, well, I think we will possess things. And one of the reasons for that is we're creating and what are we going to do with all this stuff we create? We'll have things. And beyond that. When you read Revelation 21, you get to the end of this, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of the Lord illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. What's fascinating is that when you go back to Isaiah chapter 60, you read at the end of that chapter, No longer will you need the sun to shine by day or the moon to give its light by night. For the Lord your God will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set, your moon will not go down. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will come to an end. Sounds very familiar, similar, doesn't it? 
All your people be righteous. They'll possess their land forever. For I will plant them there with my own hands in order to bring myself glory. They will possess their land. If you go back to verse 8, he says, And what do I see flying like clouds to Israel, like doves to their nests? They are ships from the ends of the earth, from lands that trust in me, led by the great ships of Tarshish. They are bringing the people of Israel home from far away, carrying their silver and gold. They will honor the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has filled you with splendor. Your gates will stay open day and night to receive the wealth of many lands. There seems to be, in that eternal city, the um, possessions of things. And when it says all the nations will bring to to the city their, their glory, you get the sense when you compare it with Isaiah that their glory is their other possessions. I think that there will be things that we have created and we will have. Now, sometimes that's hard for us to see and to understand because we have a tendency to see possessions as something bad. And part of that's because they often become idols for us. They become things that distract us and, and, are, and are negative for us. But the reality is what we have, they're gifts from God. Because God loves to give good gifts to his children. And, and that's a wide gamut of things, including a lot of our possessions, our gifts of God. The things that God imparts to us, things that because we, God has given us the ability to work, that we create and have. And quite frankly, the circumstances of life present us, put us in situations where we have things. But there is something about possessions that we see as negative. I think it's because we have a tendency to corrupt whatever God gives us. And possessions are no different. And so we have turned and twisted them into something negative instead of seeing them as what the, for what they are, a gift of God. It, it, makes, me, it makes me think of the, uh, the thing I remember from the comedian George Carlin back in the 70s and 80s. I, I say that with a little bit of hesitancy because, because he is, uh, you know, you got a, a little bit of discretion when you listen to any comedian, particularly. And so, you know, I'm not necessarily saying go out and listen to him, but I remember something that he said that I found interesting as I was thinking about this. Thank you so much. He's, are we on here? Okay, thanks. He was talking about stuff. And he says, he said, it's important to me to have a place for my stuff. He said, maybe you need a place for your stuff. He said, really, isn't that the meaning of life? To find a place for our stuff. That's what houses are, isn't it? There's a place for our stuff. He said, if we didn't have stuff, we wouldn't need houses. We just walk around. Right? He said, your house is just a pile of stuff with a cover over it. And he, and he, and he says, whatever, and when we leave our house, we lock it up because we don't want people coming and stealing our stuff. And when they do come, they always take the good stuff. They never take the junk. Nobody comes and steals the fourth grade longhouse project that we made years ago, right? Especially mine. No, they take the good stuff, and so we lock it up. And, and we need bigger houses because we get more stuff. And he said, isn't it fascinating? There is a whole industry designed to store our stuff. It's all about stuff. And we have in the back of our minds that very mindset of my stuff. 
And when we think of it that way, it feels negative. But that's only because we have the wrong perspective about stuff. It's because that our possessions have become our master instead of us being the master of our possessions. Jesus says here in Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one, hate the other, or be devoted to one, despise the other, but you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and this translation says money. The word actually is a little bit wider than that. It's sometimes translated mammon. It just means things, your possessions, your stuff. And we get caught in the trap of serving stuff. And instead of us possessing them, our possessions possess us. And they rule us, and they drive us, and they disappoint us. And from the beginning of sin, God has been saying to people, be careful about what you do about your stuff. All throughout the law of the Old Testament, over and over again, you have these laws about what to do with their possessions. God doesn't say, your possessions are bad, get rid of them. He says, think about what you're doing with your possessions. Be careful. And so you come to a passage like Deuteronomy 15 that we read, and he says, every seven years, you forgive the debts that anyone has against you. Now that will prevent enslavement to stuff. Every seven years, whatever people owe us, we say, it's done. You're free. What's interesting is that when you read the history of that, there were always people who took advantage of that. But it's who's the master and who's the slave of our possessions and our stuff. And the real struggle of life is having the right perspective about them. Because gifts are good. They're from God. It's like Andy Crouch says in his book, Culture Making. He said, I was sitting in the family room in front of the fire on a cold winter day writing this chapter. And he, he said, I stopped and I was watching the fire. I love the warmth of the fire. I love to, to watch the fire, the flames dance. I love to hear the crackle of the fire in the wood. And he said, but that's only because the fire is in its place. It's in its fireplace. If that fire were to jump out of there onto my wood floor into this fire not place, it would be a problem because that was not what it was designed to do. He said, no one writes a chapter of a book with the forest fire blazing around them. It's all about what it's intended for. So how do we get to the place where we see our possessions and we treat our possessions with a resurrection perspective? I think one thing we... We think about, we monitor what we get. We start asking ourselves questions about what we're taking in, what we're doing to get things. You know, we, we are always tempted to want more. We're all John Rockefellers at heart. Right? You know, someone asked him, what would it take to make you happy? And he said, just a little bit more. And we all wrestle with that, every single one of us. I do, you do. It's part of our sinful nature, thinking, if we just had a little bit more, if we just had a little bit more of this, we'd do it. I love gadgets. And I shouldn't tell you this, but probably you probably think less of me, but one of my favorite stores is the kitchen store in the mall. 
I mean, that's just like gadget central in that place. And when I walk in and my pulse begins to race just a little bit, looking around all these gadgets, and I'm thinking, now my life would be complete if I had one of those things that can do that to a grape. Now that is what I need right there. That's it. Right? I mean, and I do the same thing in an electronic store. If I just had a better computer or in a bookstore, if I had all these books, we're always thinking about more. And, I'm, and it's just a, it's human nature. You remember the story? Do you read this book when you were little? I know an old lady. Do you remember this book? Do you guys read? How many know this book? I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. Right? You know that story? It's a little song, too. This is Cindy's copy, I'm pretty sure, 1961. So this is going back a ways. And the story, I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. I guess she'll die. I know an old lady who swallowed a spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. She swallowed a bird to catch the spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. She swallowed an old lady who swallowed a cat. She swallowed a cat to catch the bird. She swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed a spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. And he goes on and on and on to get to the end. And it says, an old lady who swallowed a cow. I don't know how she swallowed a cow. But she swallowed a cow to catch the pig, she swallowed the pig to catch the goat, she swallowed the goat to catch the dog, she swallowed the dog to catch the cat, she swallowed the cat to catch the bird, she swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her, she swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I have no idea why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. And then you get to the very last page. And it says, I know no lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. I hadn't really thought about that story very much until I was reading Matthew Sleeth's book, Serve God and Save the Planet. And he references that story in there, and he says it's a metaphor for our need for more. This woman who has eaten a fly, for whatever reason, thinks the solution to that is to eat something bigger that will take care of that. And every time she keeps thinking, the bigger thing, something else will take care of this problem. Unfortunately, it leads to death. And that's the human problem. That's our human, one of our issues about things, about possessions, about stuff. We're always thinking if we just have a little bit more. And somehow to stop and to ask ourselves questions like, do I really need this? How does this really enhance my life? How does it do anything to draw me closer to Jesus? Does it in any way help me be a better witness to other people, to help other people? And sometimes the answer is yes. And it's not intended to be guilt-inducing. It's just intended to cause us to stop and to think about what we get. And maybe our money would be better served doing something else rather than making that purchase or doing it in that way. But it's not just about what we take in. It's about what we give out. It's not just how what we get, but it's what we do with what we get. What do we do with what we have? And I think when you think about a resurrection perspective, it, it comes back to the spirit of generosity because that's the spirit of God. We describe it in all kinds of ways, but ultimately, God is, in his nature and character, generous. To a fault, 
if that is possible. And we describe it as loving kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, love, compassion. It's generosity. God loves to give. He says to Adam and Eve, I give you, I give you, I give you. He says to Moses, I give you. He says to Abraham, I give you. He says to the people of Israel, I give you. What's the promise that keeps Israel moving out of Egypt and across the desert? It's, I have promised a land for you that I'm giving you to possess. God loves to give. God is generous. And I am convinced that when we get to our eternal home, generosity will be one of the primary characteristics of each of us. We will live to give and to share. And whatever we have, we share with other people. It's really the image we get in in Acts chapter 4 of the early church. At the end of that chapter... Luke says, they were all united in one heart and mind. They shared everything in common. Whatever one had, they shared it with everyone else. Their attitude was, what's mine is yours. It's all ours. It's all ours. I think that's a glimpse of the eternal kingdom, that spirit of generosity. I I think about that when I read, again, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And he talks about how the people in hell are are given a bus trip to heaven, and they they give them a tour, and then they're welcome to stay if they want to. But nobody wants to stay because the spirit of heaven offers nothing that they want. And people who've spent all their life being selfish and greedy and self-centered about their possessions are not suddenly going to say, I want to spend eternity sharing everything I have. Which is why it is so vital to begin thinking about that now. When we think about being generous, I think, I think Scripture teaches us that our generosity starts here. In the church. I I know not everyone agrees with me, but I believe in what is taken from the prophecy of Malachi is storehouse tithing. That our tithe, that 10%, comes to the temple, the tabernacle, the church. And then we have the opportunity to be even more generous by giving to people in need, by supporting missionaries, by giving to good uh, organizations that do good work in our society and by sharing with others. But I think it starts here in the church. And I know that sounds self-serving a little bit from my perspective, but I think that's reality. Because we give, we have a church. We have a building. We have a building that has lights on and in the wintertime has heat. And a building that, and a a place to to gather and a place to encourage each other. And and because we are generous with the church, we're able to nurture our children and do things for our youth and have gatherings for all of us. And we're able to run a food pantry and we're able to help people who might not be able to pay next month's heating bill because of the church. And it shouldn't be the end of our generosity, but I think it should be the beginning of our generosity. And we give. And then we watch God 
do amazing things as we give even more, even more, even more. I think that one of the greatest examples for me was when I graduated from college, one of my best friends and I loaded up that summer in his 1970 Datsun 510, a very small car. We loaded all of our possessions, and we drove from Portland, Oregon, to Wilmore, Kentucky to go to seminary. And when we got there and we got settled and unloaded, we both ended up getting jobs in Lexington, about a half-hour drive, He had this car. I didn't have a car. And he came to me right after we got this and handed me a set of keys and says, my car is yours. I think about that often because, honestly, I struggle to be that generous with my stuff. But I keep thinking about Denny's generosity to me. And I want to be that kind of generous person with whatever I have. Because I think that's a kingdom principle. I think that's a resurrection perspective. I think we can do that because Jesus says, I know you need stuff. You need stuff. So trust your heavenly father to provide it. And if you're generous and you give, God will provide. Maybe not in the way you would like, but he will provide. You can count on it. You can bank on it. And what I, what I think is also hard for us in this is that we tend to think of generosity and the way we view what we get as sort of legalistic, a legalistic burden. We have to follow these rules. We have to, we have to do these things, and, and it feels burdensome to us. But the reality is the people who hold things lightly are people who live in freedom and joy. Because we're mimicking God in whose image we're created. You've seen little children who gather their toys around themselves and wrap those things close and yell, mine, mine, mine. Right? Do they look happy? Do they look free? No. They look frightened and angry and apprehensive and anxious it's people who live with an open hand that live in freedom. And it's hard. I mean, it's a struggle for me. And I suspect it's a struggle for you in one way or another. But it is a resurrection perspective. I was thinking about this idea of, of freedom And thinking back to last year, about this time, we were getting ready to move into the new offices that had been remodeled. And um, if you haven't seen them, you should. They're they're wonderful. And in order to get a conference room in those offices that we didn't have, in order to add another office that we didn't have, everyone's office shifted a little bit. And my office went from being about 375 square feet to about 150 square feet. And I was all on board with the changes. I thought they were great. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, hmm, how's that going to work? There is something prestigious about having a big office. People walk in and go, wow, you must be important. Look at how big your office is, right? But even beyond that, um, I had in that old office, I had 28 linear feet of bookshelves from floor to ceiling. In this new office, I have 19 feet of linear bookshelves 
And in the old office, I had six file cabinets in there. If I put six file cabinets in my current office now, you couldn't turn around hardly. And I had couches in the other office, which are great for meetings and, and for thinking sometimes in the afternoon when you need a little bit of thinking time. And ever so often I'd walk over there and I'd walk through in the studded walls and walk into that little space of my office and think, wow, this is small. This is going to be interesting. Well, what am I going to do? I had to downsize. So I went through all my books and I gave away a whole bunch of books. And some people helped me digitize all of my files. And I got rid of the file cabinets. And and now I have two chairs in my office instead of couches. And I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. And about two days in, I sat there and thought to myself, this is the greatest thing in the world. And a year later, I can tell you, I love my new office. I wouldn't go back for anything. The old office felt like a place to meet. This feels like a place to think and to study and to pray. And, and I just love the fact of it forced me to downsize. And that felt so good. Rather than feeling like I was giving up things, what I really felt like I was being set free. And it ended up, Cindy and I both did that with our offices, and we went home and started doing it at our house. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, if you come to the Memorial Day yard sale, you can take home some of our stuff. And now it can be your stuff. I'm not sure I would have really believed that that would bring freedom, but it has. And I want to thank the trustees for for doing that, not only because it looks good, but it was a gift of God to me. We all wrestle with this. But it is a resurrection perspective. In his book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box, John Ortberg, it's a great book. One of the chapters is titled, Remember, Your Stuff Isn't Yours. Your Stuff Isn't Yours. I've been thinking about that, and I think I disagree with that. I think it is ours. I think God gives us these things. You know, after that passage in Acts 4 where it describes the people, a little bit later it says Barnabas sold a field and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, and that became kind of a cool thing to do. So in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sell a field, and they bring the money and lay it at the apostles' feet, only they tell them it's the whole amount, but it's really not. And they get in pretty serious trouble for that. But what I'm intrigued about is that Peter says to them, look, It was your land to do whatever you wanted with it. And it was your money to do whatever you wanted with after you sold it. And I think he's saying the things that we have really are ours. God has given them to us. What we forget is that while they may be ours, we're all going to be held responsible for what we do with them. They reflect the nature of what's in our heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What you think about your possessions, what do you do with your possessions, your mindset about your possessions, speak volumes about what's going on in our hearts. On that day, 
nothing will be more exciting and we will want to do nothing more than to share whatever we have to bring glory to God and to be generous as an act of glory to God. So the question I'm asking myself, and I'll ask you, why not start living like that now? Why not start living in that kind of freedom and joy and resurrection perspective now? Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your blessings. You are generous beyond measure. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we... We allow what we have to be our master instead of you. Turn that around. And give us the ability to see the joy and the freedom of your perspective. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.